0: We're going to be talking about repentance today in our lesson. And a big part of repentance and how you get to the point where you need repentance has to do with how you handle temptation when you're faced with temptation. And in Matthew chapter 4, Jesus is uh, faced with the ultimate temptation. He is faced with temptation from the devil himself. So whenever we open God's word, we need to ask God to help us Uh, read his word and understand his word. So let's do that now and uh, let's spend a little time in prayer and then we'll uh, check out how Jesus handles temptation. Father, I thank you for my brothers here. I thank you for each and every one of them. I thank you that you are the one true God and there is none like you. I thank you, Lord, that there is no one who challenges you. There is no one who brings any threat to you. Lord, you have authored all of human history And you are working out your plan and your design for each one of us in that human history. And I thank you for my dear friends who are here this morning, Lord. And uh, I praise you that you are going to do the work that you have determined to do in them. And and Lord, I pray that today would be a small part of that this morning. I thank you for each family. I thank you for each home. I thank you for each marriage that's represented here. Lord, I truly pray that these men are well this morning and that uh, you can use our time to encourage each of us. I pray for us as we look at your word, Lord. May we remember that what is in front of us is your holy, divine communication to us. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to understand this. Lord, it is beyond us to understand your word by ourselves. And I pray that you would come to us and you would meet us in our place of need and you would help us. So Lord, we give this time to you and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Like I said, we're going to be looking at repentance today in 2 Corinthians chapter 7. And by the way, if you didn't grab one of the outlines are on the table in the back, we also have outlines from last time. If you weren't here, you can take a look at it, and uh, that would help you if you need to listen online to that message. Okay, Matthew chapter 4. Uh, Jesus has just been baptized by John. And uh, verse 1 of chapter 4 follows the last verse of chapter 3 immediately. Jesus is baptized by John, and uh, there is a voice from heaven. This is God's voice that speaks and says, this is my son, and I'm very well pleased in him. This is my beloved son. I'm very well pleased. So the context here is Jesus is one in whom God is very pleased. And being pleased, being pleasing to God, he heads right into the wilderness. You can see in verse 1 that he's led into the wilderness by the Holy Spirit. And he is under the the leadership, he is under the direction, he is under the instruction of the Holy Spirit during that time. And in verse 2 we see that he's fasting. And he has been fasting this entire time. And it's safe to say it's reasonable to conclude that his fasting is under the direction and under the leadership of the Holy Spirit. And so he is tempted, and the temptation starts in verse 3. And Satan comes to him and he says, If you are the Son of God... Command these stones to become bread. Jesus has not been eating for 40 days, and so he's he's hungry. He is hungry, and if ever a man was tempted uh, to have the opportunity for food in front of him after being fasting for 40 days, is true temptation. But Jesus knows his ultimate instruction is from the Holy Spirit, back in verse one, and so the enemy is telling him something that, on the surface, sounds reasonable. But underneath, it's in violation of God's authority over him. And so we want to look at what he does immediately. Jesus goes what, to the place that every one of us should go to. He is a man, and he is placing himself as a man under the authority of God's word. And he goes right to the Old Testament. He goes to probably the one place in the Old Testament that every Jew is most familiar with, and it's the law that was given to Israel right as they're moving into the Promised Land. Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. He's telling the enemy, "Listen, I get my ultimate sustenance, I get my ultimate provision from God's word. Yes, I'm hungry, but my authority and my provision comes from God's word." So the devil is not easily dissuaded; he is persistent. That's something we need to understand about temptation: is the devil is going to continue to come. He comes three times. The second time, he takes him to the pinnacle of Herod's temple. He puts him up on the top of the temple. It's a large structure, one of the largest buildings in Jerusalem. And he says, um, command his angels. God has told you he will command his angels concerning you. And on their hands they will bear you up so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. He's saying, look, the Old Testament tells you that if you throw yourself down, the Lord will save you. But Jesus knows that what the enemy is asking him to do is something beyond what God's mandate is for Jesus at that time. And he knows that that would be putting the Lord to the test. So he goes right to God's word again. And he says, the Old Testament tells us you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. It is written. And Jesus understands that his ultimate strength and his ultimate provision in time of temptation again a second time is found in God's word. So he's putting himself under the authority of God's word. And the third and final time is that the enemy takes Jesus and shows him all of the kingdoms of the earth. And he says, all of these will be yours if you bow down and worship me. And I don't think we grasp how much of a temptation that is. I'm easily separated from the reality of this. And I can stand and I can say, well, Jesus, he created all of it in the first place. So that's really not a big deal for him to say, well, it's mine anyway. But he's a man. He is a man just like we are a man. And he is faced with this temptation And he's got this wonderful opportunity in front of him to have everything. But he knows that his ultimate responsibility is to worship the Lord and serve him only and not worship any other thing. So even when he's faced with a great temptation, he goes right to the Old Testament again, Deuteronomy chapter 8 again, and he says, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. So what I hope we take away from this is the way that Jesus, as a man, handled temptation. And that is that he was ready with God's word. He had God's word ready. He knew God's word. And his word, God's word, came to him and assisted him and led him and helped him and strengthened him in the face of ultimate temptation. And so that's what we need to do as men. We need to have God's word ready. Uh, And the way that God's word is ready in our mind and in our heart is if we're taking it in regularly and consistently. So I just want to urge you guys to continue meeting with the Lord regularly, daily if you can. If you are not on a reading plan, we have them in the back of your notebooks for you. Um, A reading plan is not a must, it's not essential, but it is one really, really good way to make sure you are staying in God's Word and you are tracking with the Lord and His design. When you are on a reading plan and you're in the Word, you get to see God's character on display. You get to see God's heart and God's will. So I just want to encourage you guys with that. So remember our Savior. He did the very thing that we should do. Um, He relies on God's word when he's faced with temptation. All right, I hope that's an encouragement to you guys this morning. Uh, What we're going to do now is we are going to break up into our discussion groups, and we're going to talk about the lesson that Eric gave last time on God's design for the household. So uh, I know that you guys are ready for that. I just pray that when you're in conversation together, that you're sharing really encourages one another. Okay, we are going to be spending some time in Second Corinthians chapter 7 this morning. So if you have your Bibles with you, uh, open them there. And again, if you um, need the handout, they are on the table in the back. Um, what we're going to be talking about today is biblical repentance. Uh, this is a, a topic that all of us will deal with for the rest of our lives because we are in that mixed condition that we talked about a few months ago and that we, we have affections for Christ, we have a new heart, we have new desires to please the Lord, but we're living in the same body that we were born with, and uh, there is a conflict in us between the flesh and the spirit, and we will find ourselves submitting to the flesh and its desires for us, and so there will always be a need for us to understand how to repent biblically. Um, so that is my heart, in this is that um, God in His kindness has helped us measure how we are repenting. He's given us a standard. He's given us guidelines for how it is that we should go about repentance. Um, A lot of times we're doing really well when we bring sin to a brother or we confess sin before the Lord or to our wives or to someone else in our household. And um, the issue of repentance comes up and we talk about, yeah, I need to repent. Um, Well, God in his kindness and his goodness has told us what biblical repentance actually looks like. And so today what we want to do is we want to spend a little bit of time Uh, looking at that, what that looks like, and the fruit of that in someone who truly is using biblical standard for repentance. So let's go before the Lord and ask him to help us, and then we will open it up and get after it. Father, again, I thank you for each one of these men. I thank you for this day that you've given to us. Lord, you have brought the sun up again. Uh, Lord, you prove to us that you are the God of creation, that you are worthy of our worship, worthy of our awe. And Lord, you have revealed yourself in your word. You have explained yourself and you have communicated yourself to us. And I pray, Lord, that um, as we have your word in front of us, that you would teach us, that you would be the one who instructs us and guides us. Lord, I pray that your word would be upheld. Your word would be honored. I pray for each one of these men as they're listening and they're thinking. I pray that you would be the, the speaker that your spirit would apply in their minds and their hearts the message that you have for them. I pray for myself as well. I pray that you would uh, help me to communicate well and communicate clearly to my brothers. And Lord, that the power of your Holy Spirit would enable all of us here. So we give this time to you and we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. All right, we're going to be looking at um, God's design for repentance. And uh, what we're going to do first is we're going to look at the setting for which This repentance is necessary, and Paul is writing to the church in Corinth, and Paul had a long-standing relationship. He had a very difficult, very challenging relationship with that church, and what we need to understand is the offense that the the Corinthians brought against Paul so that we can understand what the repentance looked like and why they were repenting. So uh, what I did there was I put a timeline for you, I've got several bullets in front of you, that show you sort of the chronology of Paul's relationship with the church in Corinth. He meets them on his second missionary journey. Uh, The first missionary journey, he stays pretty much in present-day Turkey. The second missionary journey, he retraces his steps through Turkey. Then he makes his way into present-day Greece. He starts up in Philippi, moves his way down through Thessalonica uh, to avoid some persecution. He flees farther and he heads down to Corinth. And he actually stays in Corinth for 18 months. You can see that in um, Acts chapter 18 describes his journey to Corinth. And he stays there for quite some time. Uh, He ends his second missionary journey. He heads back to kind of his home base, which is Antioch, which is just north of Judea. And then he heads out on his third missionary journey, starting somewhere in Acts 19 or so. And he spends a lot of time in Ephesus, and and Paul spends more time with the church in Ephesus than than any other church. And that's why uh, the the letter to the Ephesians is a very deep and condensed and rich, thick book. It's because he spent more time pastoring them and ministering to them than he did with any other church, so he could speak with them at a much deeper level. Now, but while he was there with them ministering to the church in Ephesus, he writes a letter to the church in Corinth where he is addressing sin issues in them that he saw. That first letter is not a part of Scripture. It's not part of the canon of Scripture. It's referred to as the lost letter. And Paul mentions that in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9. Uh, so the 1 the Corinthians letter is actually the letter that was written after this first letter that got lost. And so upon receiving that letter from Paul... Uh, the Corinthians read the letter, they receive it, and they have some questions that they write back. And so Paul responds to their questions to him by writing 1 Corinthians. He writes 1 Corinthians to them, and uh, he delivers that, that letter to them, and they receive the letter. And uh, shortly after they receive the letter, uh, false teachers come into the area in Corinth, and they bring contradictory gospel teaching, gospel teaching, or teaching that is contrary to the gospel, and Paul needs to address that. And so Paul actually travels from Ephesus to Corinth to address and confront those false teachers. And uh, while he is there addressing them and confronting them, the church in Corinth actually abandon him. They they don't stand up for him. They don't acknowledge that he'd he been there for 18 months and he was their leader and that, that his gospel message is the true message. They don't stand up for him. They don't... Um, They don't side with him, they more side with the false teachers. And that hurts Paul deeply because he invested a lot of his life in them. He spent 18 months with them and written them letters and they had pretty much abandoned them. And so he is grieved by that and uh, by their lack of support for him. So he writes a third letter to them. And this is a letter chastening them because of their treatment of him while he was there addressing and confronting the false teachers. That was not second corinthians it 's a letter that sits between second Corinthians and first corinthians in time and and it 's a harsh letter it 's a letter that was very difficult for Paul to write and uh, but he wrote it because um, they needed to hear about what they had done to him and he mentions that twice in second Corinthians he mentions it in chapter two verse four he says out of much affliction, I wrote to you with many tears. The tears that he was writing to them with were, were because he was grieved over how they abandoned him when he was trying to come to their aid and maintain clear teaching in front of them. He mentions it again in verse uh, chapter 7, verse 8, near the passage we're going to be looking at. His letter to them actually caused a great deal of sorrow to them. It was, it was hard for them to receive the letter. Um, so what Paul did was he dispatched Titus to them find out how well they were doing after he wrote that second letter, uh, that that letter that sits between 1st and 2nd Corinthians. And uh, Titus comes back to Paul and, and actually surprises Paul. Titus's report is that they had actually done the very thing that Paul encouraged them to do and that they were doing very well in their repentance. And it is after that that Paul writes 2nd Corinthians. And he's very encouraged in 2nd Corinthians by the way that um they are doing and the way that they responded to his harsh letter for them. And so what we're going to do today is we're going to look at some of the details that encourage Paul about that. So um, let's do this. Let's take a look at verses 9 and 10 in 2 Corinthians 7. I'm going to read it. And what we're going to do here is we're going to see that there is biblical repentance and it requires a sorrow that is according to the will of God. So bear in mind these uh, three letters that Paul had written to the church. Um, The first letter that got lost that gave them some confrontation for some sin. Then he had 1 Corinthians that answered their questions. And then this very difficult, challenging letter that really addressed their abandoning of him. And so he's writing now and he says, I now rejoice, not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. For you were made sorrowful according to the will of God so that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation. But the sorrow of the world produces death. And so we're going to take a look closely here at what kind of sorrow is a sorrow that's according to the will of God. We can see it there in verse 9 and then um, in verse 10 as well. It's a kind of sorrow that produces repentance. Repentance. So when you look at this, what Paul is rejoicing over, he's rejoicing over the fact that they had a sorrow that led them, that compelled them to repentance. And so the Greek word for repentance is very important for us to understand here. And what the word means is it means a turning. You probably know this. It means a turning away from a pattern of sin and turning towards a pattern of holiness that honors the Lord. And so Paul is, is very grateful. He's very thankful. He finds a lot of joy in the fact that they have repented biblically. So what we're going to do here is we're going to take a look at the seven characteristics of biblical repentance. We're going to look at A through G in this. I've separated Second uh, Corinthians 7.11 into 7.11a through 7.11g. We don't see that often, but we're going to do that to understand what God's design for repentance is. So let me read verse 11. For behold, what earnestness this very thing, this godly sorrow has produced in you. What vindication of yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what avenging of wrong. In everything you demonstrated yourselves to be innocent in the matter. So again, remember the setting here, the, the offense against Paul is that they abandoned him when he went to them with uh, good doctrine to confront the false teachers. So the first thing we see in this is earnestness. Behold what earnestness, this very thing, this godly sorrow has produced in you. And so the way we can see earnestness and the way we can understand it as you look at the Greek word there is that it is a persistent striving to correct a pattern of sin. It's a persistent striving. What we see in that is that it's not a one and done It's something that starts and it continues. Repentance is something that is always ongoing in a person's life. It has to be front and center initially, but as a person continues in their path of repentance, and repentance and godly behavior becomes more a part of their life, um, it can move away from the focus as other things take a higher priority in their life, other things they need to address in their life. But it's something that they're always repenting from. It's something that they're always staying away from. Because the minute they they quit repenting is the minute that um, they will fall back into that sin pattern. So um, the way you can tell that your repentance is marked by earnestness is that you're examining your life to see whether or not there's a consistent fight against sin. So that's what we need to do as, as believers, as believing men. We need to examine our life. If there's an area of life that we need to repent from, one way we can measure our repentance and say is, we can ask ourselves, is there an ongoing, continuous, regular activity and fight against this sin? Okay. And by the way, when we're, we're going to end here, what we're going to do is we're going to end with gospel hope and gospel encouragement in all of this. Because what we're going to see here are the seven fairly high standards in front of us. And uh, they're going to be very high. And all of us are going to say, well, I can't reach that. I can't attain that on my own. Uh, But we're going to end this with encouragement from the gospel. You're not alone in this. Okay. So the first thing is earnestness. And we want to make sure that we have that well. And we understand that well. So after displaying an earnestness, there was something else that they demonstrated. And that is a vindication. You see that in 711b. What vindication of yourselves... The Greek word here for vindication means a defense, a defense, a defense consisting primarily of the absence of the sin pattern. Okay, so the defense isn't an evidence of what is there. The defense is an evidence of what is no longer there. You exonerate yourself by demonstrating a clear pattern of behavior away from the sin pattern that was in your life. And Corinth demonstrated this vindication by addressing the sin promptly after they received that third letter from Paul, the harsh letter. Uh, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 2, verse 6, sufficient for such a one is the punishment which was inflicted by the majority. There was one person who primarily led the church in Corinth away from trusting Paul and to listening to the false teachers. And it says here in verse 6 that they had actually inflicted a punishment on him. The majority of them did. They disciplined him. And they did it promptly and they did it quickly. And after that, there was no evidence that they continued to listen to the false teaching that was there. So what they did was they acknowledged that the sin was there and they followed a clear pattern away from it. So as you examine the Corinthians and you look at them, they're a church that was listening to the false teaching and they were listening to the one who was encouraging them to ignore Paul and to embrace this false teaching. That was the pattern that was in place when they received the letter from Paul. Titus's report to Paul was that they had made an immediate turn and there was a clear point in which they discontinued that pattern and then they they continued that pattern away. And so there was an absence of the sin pattern. So the way that you can tell when your repentance is marked by vindication is when the evidence of your life reveals that that sin pattern is no longer present in your life. And that's the one that we think about the most often, and that's the one that we think of, well, am I repenting? Am I repenting? How do I tell? Well, I look at my life and I see, am I I continuing in that pattern? Mm -hmm. So that's the second thing that we want to keep in front of us. The third thing is an indignation. Paul is writing to them, 711c. He talks about what indignation is on your mind. The idea here is that there is a feeling of anger over the decision to sin it's a disgust it's a disdain it's a personal displeasure Um, Corinth demonstrated their indignation over their sin as they dealt harshly with the offending brother they were so indignant that Paul actually had to remind them later on to love the brother in 2 Corinthians chapter 2 verse 8 Paul says I urge you to reaffirm your love for him but they were so strong in their hatred for what they had done, that they were very harsh to the brother. But um, the one who is indignant over their sin is thinking about their sin in the same way that God thinks about it. And that is what fuels your anger about this, your indignation, your displeasure. That's what helps you think correctly about this. And um, a man is indignant about this for, for four reasons. There are probably others as well. But I want to put these four in front of you and have you think carefully about these. Um, One reason why a man can be indignant over his sin is because he loves what God hates. He has spent time establishing a pattern in his life where he has demonstrated that he loves something that God hates. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 3. Write this passage down. Uh, We know Isaiah 9. We know Isaiah 6. The the big thing of the first part of Isaiah is that God is helping Israel understand that he is holy. Isaiah 9.3 says, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. The overarching character that describes God, characteristic of him, his character trait is his holiness. To be sure, God is merciful, he is loving, he is just, he is avenging, he has lots of other things, but the overarching character quality of God is that he is holy, which means he is separate, he is distanced, he is separate from sin. He's separate from all things that are created because he's the creator. And the repentant man is is viewing things the way that the holy God views things. When God sees sin, he has a displeasure. He has an anger towards it because he is distanced from it. And the the one who is repentant understands that he has loved the thing that God hates. And God hates that from a position of holiness. Second thing that helps a man understand why he needs to be indignant over his sin is because he is added to the sufferings of Christ. Let's take a minute to turn to 1 Peter chapter 2. These are the last few verses in 1 Peter 2. Paul is writing this to help Jews understand what actually happened at the cross. This is powerful. If we can get our minds around this, this helps us understand why it is that we need to be indignant over sin that we need to repent from. We all understand in, in small people's terms that Jesus died for our sins. Here is actually what happened when we see this. Peter writes to the church and he says, He, Jesus, Jesus himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to our sin and live to righteousness for by his wounds you were healed. Focus on bore our sins in his body and by his wounds. What took place on the cross is that the sin of every believer, every person who had placed their trust in Christ, actually became a part of Christ. So something that's sobering for us to realize is that everything we've done to this point was actually inside of Jesus. It became a part of Jesus as he was on the cross. What's even more sobering is to realize that everything that we will do that's displeasing to the Lord was inside of Jesus as Jesus hung on the cross. And that is why Jesus was punished. That's why Jesus was wounded. Uh, It's by his wounds that we were healed. And so when we enter into a pattern of sin, especially when we do so intentionally, we do so boldly, we do so brazenly, um, those things that we sin against, they were a part of Jesus as Jesus was on the cross. When he was walking to Golgotha, to Calvary, he did not yet have our sin in him. But the moment that the, the nails were put into his hands and his feet and he was, the cross was dropped into its foundation, our sin became a part of him. And for six hours he dealt with that. He dealt with the consequence of that. And so when we enter into future patterns of sin or is there some pattern of sin that we've entered into in the past, that sin became a part of Jesus as he was on the cross and he was punished for that. And uh, he was the innocent sacrifice. And I know the feeling that I have and I know the feeling that you would all probably have as you look at at an innocent person bearing the brunt of something that's unjust, um, it's not right. We should be indignant over the things that, that Jesus had to deal with because of us and our choice of sin so that's the second thing that, that should fuel us being indignant men the third thing that, that should help us understand why we need to be indignant over our sin is because we have deceived ourselves in our sin we've deceived ourselves into believing the lie that experimenting with sin, dallying into sin, and um, will be more satisfying than the fellowship with the God who delivered us from sin. James chapter 1, verse 14. Uh, if you don't have this memorized, uh, I encourage you to do so. It helped me a lot when I put this verse in my memory bank. I try to review this regularly. James 1.14, each one of us is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. God does not tempt us. Uh, We tempt ourselves when we allow ourselves to be carried away and enticed by our own lust. The believing man knows the sweetness of fellowship with Christ. And he should be angered that he invested himself in something that was never designed to satisfy him in the first place. Any kind of sin is always fleeting in its satisfaction. It's always counterfeit. It's never rich. It's never true. It's never solid. Um, It always will be counterfeit. And the believing man should be really disappointed. He should be indignant with himself because he's allowed himself to be deceived into buying the lie that something that is a counterfeit of true joy would bring true joy. The fourth reason why a man should be indignant with himself over sin is because he has imitated the spiritual deadness that's in the world around him. Another passage that's really good for a believer to memorize for a variety of reasons is Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. Let's take a look at this. This is a great passage. This is a wonderful passage. Now, When you're reading this passage, you don't want to stop at this verse, verse 3. You want to keep reading into verse 4, 5, 6, and 7 because it starts talking about God's grace. But what we want to look at here is we want to look at the past tense that Paul is using when he's describing the life of a believer. He says in Ephesians 2.1, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind. And we were by nature children of wrath, just like the rest. All of these things are are past tense truths about a believer. These are things that were true about a believer in the past. We were dead in our transgressions and sins. We used to walk according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, that's Satan, the spirit that's working in the sons of disobedience. We used to live in the lust of our flesh with no other options. That's the way it is as a believer. I came to Christ at 15 and I was sheltered in some of my, my life, but um, I was fully invested. I was fully sold out on, on satisfying myself. So the, the believer is indignant that he's chosen to live in a way that he formerly was. He's chosen to live in a manner of life that God has already redeemed him from and taken him away from. So if, if that's the disposition of the man who is indignant over his sin, there is one emotion that a man should not have when he's indignant over his sin. And that is fondness for the sin. I want you to write down that word fondness. or Remember that word fondness. Um, Fondness should be the farthest thing from a man's mind as he's repenting from sin. He should hate the proposal or the prospect of thinking fondly about loving what God hates. He should hate the idea of thinking fondly about sin for which Jesus suffered. He should hate the idea of thinking fondly about the deceit that he bought into, the lie that he believed. He should hate the idea of thinking fondly about imitating the behavior of the lost world, the world that God saved him out of. All of those things should be full of hatred. They should be full of displeasure and disgust and disdain. So thinking fondly about sin should be very, very far from the mind of a man who is repenting from sin. So how can you tell when your repentance is marked by indignation? It's so when you think about sin the same way that God does. You don't think about it fondly. You think about it in terms of what that God hates it, that Christ suffered for it, uh, that you have been deceived by it, and that the rest of the world still lives by it. And you have no reason to live like that. Um, so again, I want to put in a small plug for a reading plan here, guys. Um, we need to be in the Word. We need to be regularly informing ourselves about what God thinks about sinful things and how God thinks about the world. Um, because that is what is going to inform us of how we should respond when we find ourselves in sin. The first thing we need to think about is what God thinks about this, and then what God did about it by sending his Son, our Savior. The fourth characteristic that is in place here is fear. So not only is someone vindicating themselves, and not only are they earnest, and not only are they indignant over their, their sin, but they have a fear here. You see that in 7:11d. What fear is in place? This is a healthy reverence for the one who is most offended by our sin. This has nothing to do with being scared of God and, and His judgment over you that you think is coming. Um, Christ already suffered all of God's wrath against everyone who put their place, their, placed their trust and confidence in God. So, believer has no reason to be scared of God. They have every reason, though, to be sobered by God's holiness. Um, What it's talking about here is a reverence for God that comes about from a careful, sober observation of God's character. A sober disposition that comes from contemplating God's holiness, his righteousness, his purity, his vengeance. When we think about all of those things, um, that helps us think rightly about who God is. And when we consider the fact that we're saved into a relationship with that kind of God, that should help us and motivate us and propel us in walking away from patterns of sin. So how can you tell when your repentance is marked by a biblical fear of God when you're sobered into a holiness of life by contemplating God's character? Which again is why we need to be in the word. Because in the Word, God tells us again and again and again, I'm a holy God, I'm a holy God, I'm a holy God. If you want to be in relationship with me, um, I am a holy God. All right. The fifth evidence of biblical repentance in a person's life is a longing. After being rebuked by Paul's severe letter, the Corinthians sought to restore their relationship with Paul. Paul says that when he says, What longing was there? Um, what we need to understand here is what happens to a relationship when man enters into sin. The best place to see that is in the very first chapters of our Bible. We'll see it there. We'll look at Adam and Eve, and then we're going to look at David as well. Um, we see the, the um, 10,000 view foot of creation, view of creation in Genesis chapter 1 God tells us what he did on each of the seven days Genesis chapter 2 is the same account of creation but from a much lower level it's a much more personal level there's much more detail about man and his nature and his character and we see that, that man was alone and it's in chapter 2 that God tells us that he forms, man out of, um, he forms woman out of the man's rib by causing Adam to fall into a deep sleep Let me read Genesis chapter 2, verses 22 and 23. As I remember this, and as I read this, take a look at what um, Adam is rejoicing in. Verse 22, The Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man, and he brought her to the man. And the man said, This is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. So Adam has broken out into praise here for what God has done. He's... He's brought Adam a, a suitor, a helper who is suitable. And uh, what he's doing here is he is savoring the closeness of his relationship with the Lord, and he enjoys that that unity and that oneness. And there is absolutely nothing between God and Adam, and uh, they are in close relationship. When you read chapter three, you see how Adam falls into sin. In verses one through five, the serpent deceives Adam and Eve. In verse 6, um, the most sad, sobering verse in all of the Bible, Adam and Eve fall into sin because they eat the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And in verse 7, they recognize their sin and they hide from God. Let me read verse 8. As I read verse 8, think about the end of chapter 2, where Adam is rejoicing over what God has done by bringing him a, a helper who is suitable. Genesis 3.8. Then Adam and Eve heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. So look at what happened to their relationship. In previous verses, they were enjoying closeness. They were celebrating what God was doing as he was finishing his creation. Chapter 3, they're hiding from God. That's what sin does to their relationship. It puts a distance between God and man. There's no longer a closeness that takes place. See that in the life of David as well in Psalm 32. Turn to Psalm 32 if you have your Bibles with you. Uh, This is written in response to David's sin with Bathsheba. And at this point, David has not told anybody what is taking place. And David is, is recounting what he was like and what was going on in his mind and in his body when he was living with the truth of his sin with Bathsheba, but he hadn't dealt with it yet. Psalm 32, verses 3 and 4. When I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. My body wasted away all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away as with the fever heat of summer. So for the believer... Uh, The sweetness of their fellowship with the Lord is compromised by their entry into sin. So where does this longing come from? It comes from remembering gospel realities. It comes from remembering and understanding that you are alienated from God by your sin. That your sin produces a a separation of your relationship with God. It doesn't remove your relationship with God, but it harms it. It harms it a lot. We look at what David does in in verse 5 of Psalm 32. He says, I acknowledge my sin to you. And my iniquity I did not hide. I said, I will confess my transgression to the Lord. So he realizes that he needs to end this pattern of of hiding from the Lord and concealing his sin. And in verse 7, we see the fruit of that, the restored relationship. He says, you are my hiding place. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with songs of deliverance you contrast that to what he's talking about in verses 3 and 4 and you can see that what was the the cause of that that desire to be restored to God was his longing he wanted that fellowship with God that was lacking when he was not when he was concealing his sin when he was not confessing his sin so one of the signs that your fellowship with the Lord has been lost and it's lacking its closeness is that you have an unwillingness to confess your sin If you find yourself concealing your sin or not confessing it, what that tells you is that you have lost some of the closeness of your relationship with the Lord because you're not being open with the Lord. When you have a growing indifference to your sin, that also is a sign that your fellowship with the Lord is losing its closeness. So how can you tell when your repentance is marked by longing? It's when you're dissatisfied with the lack of closeness in the relationship with the Lord that you have because of the presence of the sin that's there. So biblical repentance requires true longing for a restored relationship with the Lord. It's not just a matter of ending the sin pattern. It's about restoring the relationship with God that was harmed when you entered into a pattern of sin. Maybe it was a longer pattern of sin, or maybe it's a shorter pattern of sin. That doesn't really matter. What really matters is that the believer has a desire to restore a closeness that he once had, He's dissatisfied with the state of his life. and I find in my life that that's, that's very encouraging. I need to sit and stop and ponder what my life was like before I entered into some pattern of sinful thinking or sinful speaking or sinful doing. When I can remember what my fellowship with the Lord was like before that, I can remember that's what I want, that's what I need, that's what God has saved me into. God did not save me into this state where I'm in here. I want to leave this and restore the the fellowship that I now have the opportunity as a believer to have. I can pray, I can rejoice, I can worship, I can serve with with integrity. I can do all of those things. That's what God designed me to do as a believer. So we want to keep that in front of us. Uh, The sixth evidence of biblical repentance is a zeal that we see. 7:11 e what zeal? The church in Corinth had zeal. This is a, a passion that is motivated by both love and hate. You love what is good, and you hate anything that brings harm to that thing which is good. We see this in the, the comfort that Titus brought to Paul as he, as he returned to Paul after Paul dispatched him to Corinth, and he returns with a good report. We see that in 2 Corinthians 7 7, and we just back up a couple of verses in our passage. But God comforted us by the coming of Titus, not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted in you. As he reported to us, your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced even more. The Corinthians did have a love for Paul. He spent 18 months with them. He served them. He taught them. He trained them. He exemplified a godly life to them. And they had a love for him. Uh, But they had fallen into a pattern of believing a lie, a false teaching, a false gospel that came to them. And they had a zeal to restore that relationship with Paul, and they had an underlying love for Paul, and they developed a hatred for that thing which which caused them to lose their close relationship with Paul. And so Paul's letter opened their eyes to the degree to which they have sinned against him, and they reaffirmed their love as they disciplined the man who led them into that pattern of sin. So how can you tell when your repentance is marked by zeal, um, by when your love for God, and when your um, love for God proves to you and provides to you a hatred for those things that will harm your love for God? So we want to make sure that we, we love what is of God and we hate those things that harm what we love. So the church in Corinth demonstrated that. It's very helpful for us to stop and think about what God has done for us when he has saved us. We think about the benefits of the life that we have today. We wake up in peace. We wake up close to the Lord. We wake up near the Lord. We wake up knowing that God is leading us to an eternal relationship with him. We contrast that to the way we used to wake up, just ignorant and indifferent to the destruction that was ahead of us as unbelievers. Um, and we love the God who did that for us. and who saved us into that relationship. We ponder for a minute how valuable and how much we should treasure our present position before God, we should see with right hatred the kind of things that harm that relationship. So that is what gets, uh, that's getting at the meaning of the zeal. And the last thing that that encouraged the believers that is a sign of true biblical repentance is what we see there, the avenging of a wrong. Um, This is to apply a consequence that promotes a holiness of life. Okay, it's applying a consequence to your own life, yourself, that promotes the holiness of life. The Corinthians avenged the wrong by inflicting discipline on the one who had participated in the false prophets' teaching and attack on Paul's personal character. Um, The verse I read earlier in 2 Corinthians 2, verse 6, this punishment which was inflicted by the majority, uh, they avenged the wrong, they dealt with the wrong, they did so in a way that was designed to restore the man into godly character. For the repentant believer to avenge a wrong is to introduce a consequence into his life that is designed to promote holiness of life. Let me read a passage that we probably all know and we probably all think about. It's good for us to ponder how to apply this. Uh, Matthew chapter 5. This is our Savior who is talking. Our Savior is teaching. He's teaching a group of people, a large group of people in the Sermon on the Mount. Most of these people are probably not followers of Christ. They are probably just attracted to this man who is very different and very unique from anything they have ever seen. Matthew chapter 5, verses 29 and 30. If your right hand makes you stumble, I'm sorry, if your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out and throw it from you. Verse 30, if your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. What you see here is a discarding of the opportunity for sin. It's throwing it away. It's doing away. It's removing the opportunity for sin. We all have to be very thoughtful and very careful about how we do that. And avenging of a wrong is to bring into our life a consequence that will promote holiness of life for us. So the the believing man who is repenting biblically is asking him good questions. What is at the source? What is at the root of this pattern of sin? What is the opportunity that I'm taking advantage of to fall into sin? Whether it's something I say or something I do or something I think about, something that I love. He thinks very carefully about what it is that, that provides the opportunity for sin for him. And he removes that from his life. So how can you tell when your repentance is marked by an avenging of the wrong when you're willing to apply a consequence to your life that is designed to promote holiness of life? Okay? All right. so those are seven principles for how we measure biblical repentance. And I hope you're encouraged by those. I hope those help you see that there is a way to gauge how you're repenting. Do you have an example of that last one? What that would look like? Yeah, I do. Um, I'll give you an example from my own life. Um, I don't want to give an example from anybody else's life. I don't want to give an example that's <laughs> that's hypothetical. Um, I'll give you an example from my own life. When we um, see an area of weakness, um, we want to, to bring it to the people that we, we trust who can help us. And the person that is most trustworthy in my life is my wife. Um, she's the one who knows me best. She's the one who sees me every day. She sleeps next to me every day. She understands me the best. And so I need to go to her with, with help um, when I need help. And uh, she, she loves the Lord. She understands the gospel. And so uh, the first step is being very thoughtful and being very careful about how I do that. And one one tool, one asset that I have available is my wife. Um, there was a time in my life when um, I used alcohol in a way that was not pleasing to the Lord. Um, it had a stronger grip on me than, than it should have, and I had allowed it to come to a place where where um, I was using it without discretion, and I was using it without thoughtfulness. And it began to compromise my witness as a believer. (coughs) I was married, I had young kids, I had three young kids. One of them is sitting here right now. And um, I had gotten to the place where my use of alcohol was not honoring to the Lord. And I was gotten to the place where it was sinful in my use of it. It was not thoughtful. It was not helpful to our family. Uh, It was a compromise of my witness. Um, That was in 1999, so it was a long time ago. And um, I went to my wife, and I I told her that um, I understood that this wasn't something which consumed my life on a daily basis, but it was something that from time to time uh, compromised my witness, and it did so only in front of my family because I was only willing to do that in front of my family. I was a hypocrite, and I was um, in the way that I was doing this. So I went to her, and uh, I just told her that this is an area of my life that I need you to participate with me in, and uh, I need to remove this from my house. Um, I had gotten to the place in my own life where I wasn't using it well. I wasn't using it with joy. I wasn't using it with self-control. I wasn't using it with thankfulness. I wasn't using it with moderation. I wasn't using it with integrity. Um, And I knew that. My understanding of the problem has matured as I've looked back over it over the last 15 or so years. Um, But I went to her and I said, I I need some help. Um, My decision is to remove this from my life. And um, I need your help. And so we, we quit together. So we left that area of our life behind us. Um, It was not an area of my life that I could... um, I felt like I was in a place where I could address by myself. I needed help. So I went to the one that I trusted the most, that knew me the best, and could help me by changing our circumstances towards it. So um, that part of our life was no longer a part of our household. Um, The closet in the garage that we used to store it and now contains lots of water and Gatorade and other (laughs) stuff like that. But I went to my wife and I said, um, I'm going to need help walking away from this. And she did. She helped me. How long did it take the process of sanctification? Three months, six months, one year? With the help of your wife? Uh, I was gone in one day. we we'll go one going. Yeah. September 7th, 1999. Only God's grace. Only God's grace. Yeah. And uh, I did not understand God's grace at the time, and I want to talk about that now so we understand this. Um, This is something that is is very, very important because what we have in front of us is a very high standard, a standard that that we think, oh, you know, how am I going to grow my indignation? How am I going to grow my longing, my fear, my reverence? How am I going to grow all of these things? Um, The answer is in the gospel. Okay, guys, we need to understand this really well. So turn in your Bible to Romans chapter 6. Um, if you don't understand Romans chapter 6, you are missing a treasure. you are truly missing a treasure for you. Um, you need to understand that there are two things that are at work here. One is on God's end, what God does. The other is on our end. Successful repentance requires God's grace and man's effort working together. We know that God's grace is always in effect. You see that all over Romans chapter 6. Grace, Christ's victory over death and sin enables your victory over sin. Let's look at Romans chapter 6, verse 4. The believer now has the ability to walk in newness of life. Romans 6, 4. This is one of my favorite verses in the Bible. Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so too we might walk in newness of life. Uh, the might there doesn't mean, well, I, I can, I'm not sure. It means we have the ability to walk in newness of life <coughs> as believers. Okay, and look at this. Look at what the reason why we can do that is in the middle of the verse. So that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father. When Christ was raised from the dead, he accomplished something very important. And that is he conquered death. And he also conquered the sin that caused the death. Let's read verses 6 and 7 to understand how we're free from the power of sin. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with Christ in order that, in our, that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin for he who has died is freed from sin. The principle there is that we are no longer slaves to sin. When a person comes to Christ, one of the major things that happens is that sin's power has been removed from them. Prior to Christ, you are under the influence of sin. You are under the power of sin. That's all you can do. You have no affections to love God and live for God. As a believer, sin's power has been removed from you. Sin's penalty was removed at the cross. That's a one-time event. Sin's power has been removed from you. For the rest of your life as a believing man, until you die, sin's power has been removed from you. We are deceived into sin by allowing ourselves to be enticed by our own lust. But fundamentally, functionally, foundationally, what has happened is sin's power has been removed from us. And the reason why the way we know that is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Um, God provides a way out for us when we sin so we can stand up under the trial that is there. We should always be when we're faced with sin. The first question we should always ask ourselves is, where's the escape? Where's the back door from this? As a believer, you have one. And it's always into running with gospel truth. And the gospel truth is the thing that's in front of me is by no way designed by God to satisfy me the same way that God satisfies me. So what we need to understand from Romans chapter 6 is that the believer has a new relationship to sin and that sin doesn't rule over us the way that it did before we were believers. That's what God has done. That's in place. That's always in place. That's a truth that we can count on. We can bank on for the rest of our lives. The other half of this is our part. Our active participation in what grace has already enabled us to do. Let's turn to Philippians 2, chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. Paul didn't spend as much time in Philippi as he did in Corinth or in Ephesus but he still writes to them well and what we're going to see here is on the front end of this look at what the instruction is to the Philippians at the end of verse 12 and then look at the enabling by God at the beginning of verse 13 so then my beloved just as you have always obeyed Not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. That means there needs to be a fear, there needs to be a trembling, there's a reverence, there's an awe. This is something that they're actually doing. The work out your salvation is a very active command. It's a command, it's not an option. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. But verse 12, or I guess verse 13 is very important. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and work, to his good pleasure. So there's a command to work out our salvation. There's a command for us to participate in this process. But um, we work out that salvation on our end because it is through us working out our salvation that God works his good purposes for our lives. If God didn't already have a good purpose for our lives, our own working would be in vain. Okay, So God has already prepared a purpose for you as a believer, that you would bring him glory, that you would be a good servant, a good instrument in his hands. And the way that you accomplish that is by working out your salvation with fear and trembling. So birth parts are required, but everything is going to fail if God's grace is not present. God's determination to already finish the work that he began in you is not not there. So I want to provide encouragement for you. The main encouragement is that you have a new relationship to sin and that... um, It no longer has any power over you. Long for the day when not only has the penalty been paid and the power been removed, but its presence is removed. And that is in eternity. I want to keep that in front of us. I meant to bring in three books today, and I forgot to do it because it was so early when we left. But I want to ask you to write down uh, three titles that if you want to read more, these are excellent resources. They're very, very good. The first is called The Doctrine of Repentance by Thomas Watson. He's an old dead guy. Doctrine of repentance. Um, Very, very solid book. We have it on the bookshelf out here. You can purchase that. A very reverent, very pious man who understood a lot about repentance. The second and the third titles are titles that are uh, from John Owen. He's a guy who lived a little bit before Thomas Watson. He was a British guy, uh, late 1600s. the first title is called The Dominion of Sin and Grace. Okay. Dominion of Sin and Grace. And the second of those two is called The Mortification of Sin in the Believer. Um, books that are 400 years old, but uh, they are powerful. Those are the, the three most significant materials that I've read that help me. You can find in John Owen's writings, um, you can find the contemporary versions that have been written in today's English, which is a little more understandable. Um, One good thing about reading the Old English is you've got to read it slow, so you've got to get it. It's it's harder to just blow over it, Uh, but those three resources are very, very, very helpful. Those last two I try to read every two years, just to keep the material in front of me. The third one is The Mortification of Sin in Believers by John Owen second one is also by John Owen. Um, as well. The, domain. the domain. dominion of sin <coughs> and grace. And what those do is they, they hold up God's grace as the only but the necessary means by which you repent from sin. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for my brothers that are here this morning. Thank you for your goodness and your grace to them. I praise you for saving believers, Lord, for saving us into a relationship with you. I pray that each one of these men would be encouraged by the truth of your word of what repentance really looks like. and I pray that they would lean heavily on your grace so they could fight a good fight against sin. Lord, I pray that you would assist them as they go about their weekend, whether it's at work or at home. Lord, I pray that when we gather together tomorrow to worship, that you would enable us to do it well. I pray in Christ's name. Amen.